Well, thanks for the chance to be back. I'm, I'm never quite sure what to make of a leadership retreat weekend and being the one who gets invited. Uh, on the one hand, I think, wow, what a privilege. They trust me to sort of stand up here and talk about Jesus without them having to be sitting there kind of making sure I say what I'm supposed to say and don't venture outside the lines, which really isn't my personality too much anyway. And uh, I think I'm probably going to just stay on this mic. Um, you know, on the, uh, on the flip side, none of them wanted to be around to hear me. So, uh, like, I'm a little conflicted emotionally. Uh, thanks for the chance to be back here. I've been here before. Um, it's probably important if you don't, don't recognize me to know. For whatever reason, I have a fond affection for this congregation. I like you all, and it's a privilege uh, to be here. I do minister with Reformed University Fellowship up at Covenant College. Your church actually helps support uh, that ministry financially and in prayer. And so thank you for your part. We're wrapping up a semester. As you may well know, some of you are involved with uh, the school. I see a couple students that I recognize, and so I want to say thank you to the rest of the congregation because I love them. I want to say thank you for the way that you take care of them while they're here among you and want to remind you that love for a college student equals food. And so please continue to feed them graciously, generously, and frequently uh, as you are able to. I want to read our text this morning. This is often referred to as the Great Commission, but I'm intentionally backing up two more verses to set it in context because I think those words are an important part of understanding the mission of the church. And so this is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And I'm going to start in verse 16 and read through uh, 20, which is the end of the book. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I know we've prayed some already, but can we pray again uh, for our hearing and for God to come and speak to us? Uh, Jesus, we're your people, and these are your words, and we're depending on you to make the connection. Uh, in the next couple minutes, would you help us to hear from you by your spirit um, so that we'd be changed, and especially so that we would be comforted in what you call us to do. Pray for your help for me uh, to say words that bring life, and I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know I recognize at least one of the students who's here occasionally, regularly, is it our RUF large group? And I actually did this text a couple months ago, and so if you happen to remember everything that I said, you probably would be the one in the room who needed to hear this a second time. Or maybe more accurately, you and I both <laughs> needed to hear it another time. Uh, you know, I got thinking about this. During spring break, Covenant College sends out a number of teams to various parts of the world, and I was able to be one of the team leads on a group that went to London, and we went to a place in London called South Hall, and the South Hall in London is also referred to often as Little India. 
because it's almost all India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh immigrants who have congregated in this place way out in West London. They told us if we got lost on the tube, their subway, and you told people that you were headed towards South Hall or Hounslow, which is the community just below it, people would sort of raise an eyebrow and say, why do you want to go out there? Because it's sort of the other side of the tracks for London. And while we were there for a week, we got to interact with people who come from backgrounds from Hinduism and Sikhism and Islam. And I got thinking as I was there for a week how easy it was to be engaging with people who believed something other than Christianity for a week when I was very intentional about it. We were out on the sidewalk passing out literature for a church that we were helping with as a way to make connections because relationships are really important important part of, of ministry there. And I got thinking about Chattanooga, and I get the environment is different. If you hand out literature on the sidewalk in downtown Chattanooga in the midst of another world religion called secularism, it's weird. When you do it in little India, it's acceptable because religion's a part of their life. But I still got processing and thinking. It's what led me to, to chewing on this verse for a little bit more, this passage a little bit more because I, th I think it's easy for me, experientially, to just slip that there are people all around me that God says, you have the, well, in one way you could look at it and say the calling, but in another way you could look at it and say, you have the, the privilege, you have the possibility of being involved and seeing people come to life by sharing the gospel with them and, and being a part of making disciples. And isn't it easy to live numb to that? to just go through life. It has been for me, and that got me thinking I'm, maybe I'm not unique in this regard and, and headed toward this passage, which is sort of the signpost for making disciples. And I think it's important that we remember our, our mission. You know, Coca-Cola, big in Chattanooga, lots of Coca-Cola money here, big in Atlanta, big in the Southeast. I know people that won't drink that other soda that starts with a P because that's from someplace else. We're a Coca-Cola people, but Coke knows what they're about. Their, their mission is to get Coca-Cola down the throat at a cost to every person in the world. And so you can go to little India and you can go to places in India and you can go to places in China and you can buy Coca-Cola. They're focused and they're spreading. And sometimes it's easy for me, for us, to get unfocused and to not be a part, a part of the spreading. So I wanna take a look at this through a couple of headings. One, I wanna look at who Jesus says that he is or who the passage reveals him to be. And then who we are uh, from the passage and then what do we do uh, with that. So first of all, uh, I wanna point out that, that, it, um, that this is Jesus the Christ, that this comes at a point in the story of the gospel where Jesus has lived his life, he's gone through the trial, he has been crucified, the resurrection has happened, he started to appear to his disciples, this is one of the last things that he communicates before his ascension into heaven where the ministry gets passed off to the disciples. This is the last thing that the Messiah says. This is Jesus Christ. And I, I know that you know this, but Christ is not a last, last name. It was not Jesus Christ and the Christ family. It was not Mary Christ and Joseph Christ and, and the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. Oh, oh, you're one of the Christ family. It was a title. Jesus the Christ, which means Jesus the anointed one. Jesus 
the Messiah, Jesus the promised one. And it's actually very important to Matthew that we understand that because he starts off the book in chapter 1, verse 1, and says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. And then Matthew builds the story up, and you get to the middle of the book, and kind of the apex of the book of Matthew is Jesus is having this discussion with the disciples, and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter mouths it, and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And from there, it clicks into the rest of the mission until we get to the very end of the book. And Matthew is not steering away from, this is Jesus, the anointed one. And, I, and it's grounded in something that goes back much farther, further, farther, sorry grammarians, I always stumble over that one, than just the book of Matthew. I'm going to read something to you from the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel, the kind of confusing book full of a bunch of dreams and, and visions, which you know, Presbyterians, we don't know what to do with that when God appears personally and says something confusing. And we're like, we need solid stuff. We need facts and figures. But this is one of the dreams. And I think Jesus actually picks this uh, visual story up. And you hear the language in the Great Commission. So this is from chapter 7, verse 13. This is one of Daniel's visions. I saw in the night visions. And he's talking about Messiah, anointed one, the Christ. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, someone who looked like a person. Well, you know, as the Bible unfolds, that Jesus takes up this title from Daniel later on and says, yeah, that's, that's me. I'm the son of man. So Daniel says, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which is the father, and was presented before him, and to him... The one like a son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, should be disciples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the first thing I want to point you to is that in this passage in Matthew, Jesus is being He's picking up messianic, anointed, kingly language and saying, I get to take the words of the king on my lips because I'm the king. And so these communications come from one who has authority. He's also the resurrected one. Uh, as I've said already, this, this comes at a point in history. And you know the story, right? Yeah, right, okay. Yeah, Jesus lived, got that. Yeah, and, and the Last Supper, garden, prayer, arrest. We just did this, right? This was just Easter. Trial, disciples scatter. Yeah, yeah, crucifixion, uh-huh, cross, dead, got it. Don't you do that? You've heard it so much. You're, you, can, you can just sort of not, like, I know the story. Yeah, yeah, right. But this is a guy who came back to life from the dead, People don't do that very frequently, you know. <laughs> right? It's, it's impressive. I, I have said this before. I don't know if I've said it here. But if you were at a funeral and the person got up, it would be bedlam. Right? If you were at a viewing or the comforting of the family and it's an open casket and the person sits up, ah! people would run and scream because it's so infrequent. 
We don't conquer death. This is a man who was dead in the grave and he's back on the earth talking to his disciples. So what has he got to say should have some weight to it. It should matter to us. And it comes as the one who was crucified. This is the one who has overcome sin, has overcome death. All authority, he says, is the one that I am. All authority. I overcame death. Now all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. This is what I'm going to tell you to do. But you know, authority, and we get to say this on the college campus, this may be the issue of the day for this generation and for the one that's coming. Who gets to say what's true? Who gets to say what is? Who gets to say how and why? Who gets to say right and wrong? Because we live now in a society and a culture where it has taken some logical conclusions of some views that previous generations have held and now it's very important to be able to be self-deterministic in the outcome for your life. And I think the confrontation with those of us who say uh, somebody else gets to say what's right and wrong potentially will become more pointed, but part of the problem we have in voicing it is we do the same thing as the rest of our culture. Right, God, you've got authority, but don't mess with the parts of my life that I really don't want you to interfere with. Don't make me uncomfortable financially or time-wise or recreation-wise or any other-wise. And we ought to be a little more humble toward everyone who doesn't profess the name of Jesus and recognizing, y'all, we got a lot in common with you. It is hard to come under him. It is hard. It's good, and we affirm that, but we struggle with it too. And so these are words, though, that come from the one who says, I got up from the grave. I have authority over life and death. And so when I say things, it's going to matter, whether we want them to matter that way or not, because he has the authority, and he's proven that it's right for him to take it to himself. And lastly, Jesus reveals himself here as one who is with us always. And that's good news in light of the other three things about him. This is the long-promised, authoritative, resurrected, conquering King Messiah. And he says, I am with you always. And I don't know how you hear that. Is that a pat on the back for you? Like, I'm with you. Like, keep keep going, tap, or is it even more distant, like, I'm behind you, way behind you, like, way back here, and you keep going, like, I'm theoretically supportive of you, it's more than that, it's what I said at the very beginning of our service of worship this morning, he's with you, in you, by the Holy Spirit, And for some of us, you can take that one of two ways. Some of us take that very threatening because that means everywhere that you slide out from under authority, him being with you means he knows and he's watching. And oh no, I forget about that all the time. That's what makes it so easy to slip on the authority is you forget he's with you. 
But more I want this to encourage you. He's with you. He's with you. And the call to command, uh, the command call that he gives you, the, the directions, the way he exercises authority is not uh, maybe like the setup of this room where I'm standing facing you, above you, delivering a message to you. It's more like he's facing the same way you're facing, walking with you, promising to be with you. So the same Holy Spirit that says God uh, is present, he's, he's within us, is the Holy Spirit that goes with you into ministry, into those fearful things that you face as you think about making disciples, whether that's the fear of what people are going to think about you or the fear of the time that it's going to take or any of those things. But he is at work. He is so with you. So Jack Miller says, in all our working, Jesus will be secretly working by his own inward presence in our lives, taking away our fears, giving us love for the lost, enabling us to forgive our enemies and friends, who are sometimes harder to forgive, and giving us a fervent trust in the power of the gospel to bring men to faith and to eternal life. So this is the Christ who gives authority in two ways. He gives legal authority because of who he is, but he also invests the relational authority with you, the, the very power to go forth. And so this is who he is. This is the one who makes this call, go and make disciples. We'll come back to what that call means in the what we do. But I'd like to take a look also at what the passage teaches us about who we are. Uh, first, very quickly, to just point out that there's a bit of a transitive principle. If you're a math nerd, you know what that means. In this passage, there is Jesus giving the command to his disciples to go and make disciples and teach them to obey everything that he's commanded, which includes the things that he's saying here at the end of Matthew, which will take you back around and make you a disciple whose job it is to go and teach, make disciples and teach others to obey everything that he's commanded. Do you see how there's a loop going here? What's a disciple? It's a follower who's growing, maturing, learning, to observe and to obey all that he's commanded. So if you, if you think about you as a disciple, in light of that transitive principle of discipleship, it's actually pretty incredible. At some point, if you're a follower of Jesus, you became a disciple. You, something happened, you said something, you identified and joined a church, you told somebody else, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm I'm going to be a learner, a grower, a follower, a disciple of that man, that one who overcame death. I'm, I'm going to go along and, and be with him. I'm not going to be a follower of Muhammad. I'm not going to bow down at the other idols. I'm not going to be a secularist. I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus. That happened to you at a time somewhere in your life, or maybe it's, maybe it's ahead of you in your life. Maybe it's something you're contemplating. I want to pause your life, and I want to go back to the actual context of this passage. On a mountain, near Galilee, 
when Jesus tells his disciples, go make disciples of all the nations, baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And you know what? They went. It's the book of Acts. That's another sermon series. I won't do the whole thing this morning. And they told people. And they became disciples. And they told people who became disciples, who told people who became disciples, who told people who became disciples. I won't do it generation by generation because it would take me a long time, but somewhere that trickled down and somebody told you. Somebody in that chain told you and you became a disciple. Our gathering here this morning is the proof is in the pudding of this passage. It happened and we are the outcome. And the design is that it will keep happening and other people will be the outcome. So when I'm in seminary, I had a professor who said, my job is to teach you that Jesus might not come back for thousands and thousands of years, but to get you to live like it might be today. And that applies here. Live like it's today, but also know this might go on for your lifetime and a lifetime and a lifetime and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren, and it might not be actual uh, genealogical relatives. It might be people that you have influence in their life. This story is going, and you are a part of it. You are the outcome of it because it's been happening, and it will keep going. And one of the questions we have to ask is, to what degree do we want to be a participant in it? Who are we? What, if we identify as disciples, in what way are we taking up the story and moving forward in it? But it's actually pretty incredible that you're folded into it, right? It's been hundreds of years since this happened. It's been thousands of years since this happened. And as history moved along, it swept right into you. And here we are. We're a church. We're worshiping Jesus this morning as his disciples and it would be pretty cool if sometime when, if Jesus doesn't come back and we're dead and gone and buried, somebody says just what I said and the part of their history of the disciple who told a disciple who told a disciple on that day would be you because you had told somebody and Jesus worked and the Holy Spirit took up residence in them and they became a disciple. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that a lot better sounding than, y'all better go do some evangelism because that's what good Christians do. It's a lot more compelling for me. But there's not only, there, there's, a, there's a few responses to these disciples that they have in this passage. Uh, and I want to start with the one that sort of resonates with me the most. Verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. This is the 11 disciples. Like Judas is off the scene temporarily because he folds himself out of the story. This is the 11 disciples. And there's a resurrected man standing in front of them that they can recognize. He says stuff to them like, I've got the holes here. You can touch me. I can eat the, the food. You, you. 
And it's weird because after the resurrection, sometimes they recognize him and sometimes they don't. But this time they recognize him. And some doubted. Now the word for doubt there doesn't mean a refusal to believe. But more a sense of uncertainty and hesitation and confusion. Okay, Jesus, what's going on? You are dead, and now you're not. And we thought things were going to go very different when we were at the Last Supper, and you're talking about your kingdom coming, and right, right, you kept saying suffering, but we just didn't want to really listen to you saying that that was going to happen. We didn't think that's what you really meant when you said to fulfill all things. We're really confused now. Maybe they saw him coming in the distance. And may, so maybe the doubt is, is this processing of like the, the disciples went to where Jesus said to go and they see him kind of coming up and I'm confused. In any case, there's doubt here. And the expression of doubt in the passage comes before the Great Commission. Oh, right, right. So they're confused, and Jesus says, let me settle your confusion. Here's your marching orders. Boom, boom, boom. No, it's not just that. Jesus comes to people who are confused about who he is, what he's doing in their history, what he's doing in the world. Does this sound like us? Do you ever get confused in your personal life? Jesus, you say stuff that sounds crazy. And my life feels like it's going crazy. I live with myself and I don't understand it sometimes. I don't understand why I don't make more progress. I don't understand where you are. I don't understand what you're doing. I'm doubting. I'm confused. Are you ever? Maybe you will be one day. Maybe this will help you. And into that, Jesus says, I know. I recognize doubt. And I have words to say to people who doubt. To try and help you unwind. Let me remind you, this is who you are. And this is how I'm with you. And if you do this, it should answer some of the questions. So isn't it sweet in the midst of the marching orders? This is not just Jesus like calling them to be spiritual marines. Like, you guys made it through boot camp, and you're tough, and you're ready to go now. So, holy get out, let's go. Some of them doubted, and Jesus says, I get it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Teach them, baptize them, everything I've commanded you. And you know what? In your doubts, I'm with you. As long as you're not doubting, I'll be with you. No. To the doubters, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Which is a pretty long time. He's with you. This call comes from a man with all authority who promises to be with you. The other response is some worshipped. I mean, that one's easier. You look at that, you're like, yeah, of course, right? God resurrected from the dead. You worship him. 
He's the Christ, you worship him. That's the right response, but it's not the only response that the text shows us. And I think it's a kindness. So what do we do with this? What does it mean to follow the call to go and make disciples of all the nations? Some of you who are uh, good at grammar will know that in this command, there is one verb and three participles. And I'll be honest, I was most of the way through seminary, which is a graduate level program before I even knew what a participle was, which is part of the reason I struggled with Hebrew and Greek so much when I was in seminary. But it's a supporting command action to the main verb. And so the main verb is to make disciples. Go and make followers. Go and make other learners who are committed to being under this teacher. But the what that means comes under the going, baptizing, and teaching. There's three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching. And I'd like to just say a few things about each of those. The going is something of a gathering work. We tend to hear, and, and this often comes either from a missionary or on a missions conference, go, go, go make disciples, go somewhere and do it. Go out there. Go to a foreign country. Go to downtown Chattanooga. Wherever you are here, the going must imply you have to leave here and go somewhere. But actually, the phrase is a little bit better understood as, as you're going, in your going, make disciples. So while you're going, be gathering there's really a gathering idea that's captured in the gospel. So, so let me pick up a couple of them that Jesus has shared with his disciples at the end of, of his life. He says in John 10, I have other sheep, not of this fold, the parable in Luke 14, where the servants go out and invite other guests because the, what, the invitation of the party went out and the first people that were invited said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm busy, I can't come to the party. And they said, okay, well, go find other people to invite to the party and bring them in. Bring them to the party. Or John 12, where Jesus tells the disciples that when he's lifted up, which means crucified, that he will draw or gather men unto himself. When Jesus first calls the disciples, he says, I will make you fishers of men. That has a gathering uh, expression to it. The thrust of the teaching of the Gospels is bring them in, bring them along, make them disciples. And then in Matthew 12... He says this very challenging truth. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And that's kind of the thought I had coming from London back to Chattanooga. Why is it so easy to go to London for a week and be a gatherer there and come back to Chattanooga and be a little bit tuned out in the doing any gathering while I'm going. Jesus challenges me and says, some way you may be engaged then in scattering. He gives two options. You're pulling them in, and if you're not pulling them in, you're driving them away. Okay, now that's like the uncomfortable evangelism sermon thing right there, right? You feel that? Like, ugh. What am I doing with that truth? Am I gathering or am I scattering? 
And again, I want to invite you to think of it uh, in the beauty of being a gatherer. Don't you have people around you that you, thought, that you think, like, you know, if Jesus intersected their life, it would be beautiful. What, a, what would it be like for them to get out from the weight of their guilt and their shame in their life and know that Jesus forgives them and loves them because he died on the cross for them? What if God's truth actually started to work in their life from the inside to the outside? What would it do with the expressions of anger and divisiveness and helplessness that we see in our neighbors' lives? Now, you know people that hurt, right? If you don't, you're a hermit. I get it. I'm an introvert, too. But you know people that hurt. And we have promises that bring life. And we hold them. And I don't know as we, if you step back and think about it, you want to stay holding on to that. You're scattering when you're holding on to that and not giving it away to gather people in. How far do you gather? Well, your going could take you to the ends of the earth. It's covered in the passage. But I want to encourage you, as you're going, be a little more bold in your gathering. It's a good thing for people to become disciples. You live in a culture where that's a threat. You're not one of those Jesus people, are you? Well, actually, I think I am. And it's, it's actually, I think, better than most people think it is. What do you think that means? Wow, you get, there you go. You have a conversation now. You've engaged people. You're in the process. It's not your job to make them over the edge to believe in Jesus. It's just your job to represent him. I'll say something about that in a second. Baptizing them does mean that at some point there's an identifier. We do want to encourage and challenge people. Follow. There's a lot of things you can follow in the world. But Jesus is worth following. And we want to encourage and call people to come follow him with his followers, to fold into the church. Yes, we're a mess. That's another sermon, too. Uh, but in some ways, Jesus is making us beautiful in all of our messy oddness. And we want other people to be a part of that. We actually need other people to be a part of that. There are people yet to be brought into the story of this history whose gifts and weaknesses will both be a part of our journey. And finally, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. A couple thoughts on, by way of application. Why, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? I think John Piper has a, a good take on it when he says, we tend to not commend, we tend to not talk positively about, call people to, we tend to not commend what we do not cherish. Part of the reason that we don't tell other people about Jesus is because we're really just not <laughs> convinced he's all that good. In some ways, he's a threat to us or distant from us. And that's why, if you don't commend him, I want to encourage you to go back and cherish that he's the Messiah that he did something on the cross that's for your good, and that he's with you always, that's something that you can cherish. That's a Jesus that's drawing near to you that you think, okay, but I'm not a really good Christian. I know that's what the cross is about. Stop cleaning up before you let him love you. Let him love you. That's the gospel. Cleaning up before he loves you is not the gospel. That's scattering. 
Let him love you. And I dare say, if you would let him love you, you will cherish him. And if you cherish him, you will talk about him like your favorite restaurant, your favorite book, your favorite sports team, your favorite new fashion, your favorite cool thing about your phone, your vacation, because you talk about the things you cherish. Hey, have you read the latest? Hey, do you subscribe to this magazine? Hey, do you have one of these devices? Have you downloaded this app? Have you gone to this place for dessert? Don't you do that with people? Because you love stuff. And when you love it, you tell other people about it because you want them to love it. So when you cherish Jesus, it will probably spill out. Now again, oh man, it doesn't spill out of me, so I must not love Jesus very much. Possibly. But the solution is not just punch yourself in the face for that. The solution is to go to Jesus and let him love you and tell him, Jesus, I don't think I love you very much. I don't think I cherish. That's probably a part of why I don't commend. I don't think I cherish you because I'm not sure I'm convinced that you love me like the Bible says you love me. And maybe we need to be having some conversations about this, Jesus. Maybe you need to soften me. It's hard for me to believe you love me like this. Would you convince me? You can pray stuff like that. Be a good starting point. Another way, not only do we need to cherish, but then we do need to do our going. And I think we need to get into the world of people who do not know Jesus and get some conversations going. Sure, it's fine to do contact reaching out and talking to people that you don't know at all, but I actually think it's more winsome and convincing and effective to talk to the people that you already know, not to drop like a little bomb, like pull the Jesus grenade pin out and like, okay, I'm going to have one conversation, I'm going to have them over to dinner, and I'm going to try and blow them up into being a disciple. But actually engaging in conversation, there's a way that we can become practicing segregationists. Like we affirm Christians should be out in the world, but we live away from everybody, functionally. And I know I'm just, I'm busy. Don't you feel busy? I can barely get through my week without thinking about making disciples, and I'm a professional disciple maker. So maybe it takes some intentionality, but maybe it's believing that Jesus works relationally over a long time and a lot of conversations. So when I'm in London, one of the people that our team met is a woman who two weeks before we came had professed faith in Jesus, came from one of the other religious backgrounds, had met somebody with the church team through an American team that was visiting, handing out literature 50 weeks earlier. So it had been a year, it wasn't our team. It's another group. And over the course of the year, she'd come to some women's Bible studies. She'd come to church on Sunday morning. She had a ton of questions. And people patiently answered them and said, well, well, what do you think? Well, what's your question? Well, that's a good question. Well, what do you think about what we said as an answer? Well, that's a good question, too. I, that's, yep, that's hard to believe. And, there, and that relationship grew over a time and then Jesus said okay it's your time and you know what she's perfectly fixed she's like the holiest person no she's still messy she still fights stuff she still has doubts but she's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah and has forgiven her sins 
and has crossed the line, but it took a while. Give people time, but engage them and give them time. And finally, I want to say I did this order very, very particularly about cherishing before going. Because I think the way that you go is fully informed by who you think Jesus is for you. And so I'd like to kind of wrap up with this quote from Tim Keller uh, that I think helps focus even some of our methodology of engaging people. He says, the liberal or pragmatist approach to evangelism is to deny the legitimacy of evangelism altogether. Like there's no message, there's nothing to say, God doesn't really care, so we don't do it. And the conservative or moralist person does believe in proselytizing because we are right and you are wrong. And that's not really a good way to engage people either. You're not there to pound them or argue them to being a follower of Jesus. It's almost always offensive. But the gospel produces a constellation of traits in us. First, we're compelled to share the gospel out of generosity and love not guilt. Because Jesus has died and paid for even your sin of failing to do evangelism. And it doesn't matter how much evangelism you do, he's not going to love you any more than he already does. And so you can give the hope of the gospel away out of love and generosity instead of me standing up here and saying, y'all better clean up your outreach act or he's gonna get you. Second, we're freed from the fear of being ridiculed or hurt by others. Isn't part of the reason we don't talk is because we are scared that they'll think we're Jesus freaks? And that's not really popular right now. But you know what? You have the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth who has said, I have a favorable opinion of you. I know all about you. I know how weird you are. I know how sinful you are. I know how scared you are. And I love you. That opinion will drive you toward generosity in the midst of what otherwise could make you afraid. Third, we will have humility in dealing with others because we know that we are saved only by grace alone and not because of our superior insight or character. Look, if Jesus saved this room of people, are there any cases that are too hard? <laughs> I'll just take me. If Jesus has saved me, there are no cases that are too hard. I am the most self-righteous person that you will ever meet. I think so highly of myself and so lowly of myself because I'm afraid that you will find out that my self-perception just isn't true. But I don't I don't need to carry that into other people. I don't need to say, I'm a good Christian, and I'm up high, and I'm going to bring you up to where I am, to other people. I need to remember the one who was high came low for my haughtiness so that I don't have to be haughty before other people. Fourth, we're hopeful about anyone, even hard cases, because we were saved only by grace, and not because we were likely to become disciples. Fifth, we can be courteous and careful with people because it's only God's grace that opens people's hearts, not your eloquence, not your persistence, not your friendliness, not your hipness, not your coolness, not your hospitality, 
not your programs of your church. It's the grace of God. And he will use all of those other things. But in the final analysis, it's because he said, I want that person to be a follower. And I'm going to get them. And I'm going to let you be a part of that. So why don't you share something with them? Why don't you love them? Why don't you be humble before them? Why don't you overcome your fear of them? Because it would be thrilling when they stand up in front of a church and are baptized as a follower of Jesus to just inside say, I can't believe you let me be a part of that. And that just mattered forever. They're in. They're with him. They're different. They're changed. They're new. And they become a part of the story too. Let me pray for us.